from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and uh, one of the reasons I chose it from this book is because Ephesians is the New Testament book about the church. You want to know about the church? Read Ephesians. In fact, I thought maybe what I would teach today is simply Ephesians and go with it, but that's not what the catechism says. First chapter, beginning at verse 11. In him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard of the, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And with that, we re end the reading of God's word. Let he who has the Spirit hear what the, the Spirit is saying to the churches. You may be seated. I pick this out because it talks about the inheritance we have. And usually when I've heard people talk about this inheritance, they think about uh, the benefits that have come. And they think about, well, their salvation, their forgiveness, and all of that. I think in context, one of the things that Paul is talking about as he talks about our inheritance is primarily the Holy Spirit. That's our inheritance that has been given to us. He is a seal. He's a guarantee. He's a down payment. If you ever had to buy a car or a house, you know one of the first things you have to do is you have to put a down payment on it. And that down payment is a guarantee that what you're going to do is pay the rest of the money eventually. The Holy Spirit is the same down payment that God gives to us that says that everything in, in this book, everything, every benefit he wants to give to us, he will pay it eventually, and it will come. And so when we come to this third section of the creed, uh, as described in the catechism, we are looking at the Holy Spirit and the inheritance that he is giving to us. Now, let me remind you the Apostles' Creed as the Nicene Creed is split into three parts. First part has to do with the Father, creator of heaven and earth. Second part has to do with the Son, his background, his birth, his life, his death, his ascension, and his return. The third section begins, I believe, in the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on to list a few other things. Now, usually when I've heard people talk about the Apostles' Creed, the third section, they stop at the Holy Spirit and they say, well, that's, you know, that's it? That's all they're going to say about the Holy Spirit? No, that whole third section deals with the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. The uh, whole, Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, that's all part of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so as we take a look at Lord's Day 21, we are taking a look at the work of the Holy Spirit and the church or within the church as he is very busy building God's people. Not just individually, which is in 21st century Christ American Christianity, that's a lot of what we hear, what the Holy Spirit's doing in me. 
But the catechism and the creed reminds us that he is doing it corporately in our midst. It's not just the blessings I get. It's the blessing he gives to all of us and the blessings we have with one another. So it talks about three things, each question. The construction of the church that the Holy Spirit is doing, the communion of the church that the Holy Spirit is creating, and the cohesiveness or cohesion uh, that the Holy Spirit is bringing in there. And that's what we're going to take a look at today. First of all, the construction of the church. And again, if you'll turn with me to 1 Peter 2. Beginning at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were not received mercy, but you now have received mercy. And here Peter is talking about the construction. The idea of a spiritual house is the idea of a cathedral. Uh, we build churches and we can build them or we can repair them within a very short time. Building a cathedral takes decades, centuries. St. John's Cathedral in New York is 100 years in the building. And it's not because they don't have the money. It just takes a lot of time. And the Holy Spirit is building a cathedral. The cornerstone is Christ. Those who are believers in Christ are living stones that he's putting together piece by piece in their proper place at their proper time. Foundation is built upon the prophets and the apostles, as Paul tells us in Ephesians. But each one who believes in Christ, a living stone put in the singular place. Not only in congregations, but in the church as a whole. And the Holy Spirit is constructing. What's he doing? He's making you fit to become the dwelling place of God. The house isn't done yet. The cathedral is still in the construction mode, but we each have our place. Now, some of us are way down by the foundation where nobody ever sees us. Other of us are stones that help to define the bathroom. Others of us may be those who are out front, but every one is being put together by the Holy Spirit as he constructs his church. And so the catechism says this, what do you believe concerning the holy Catholic church? Answer, 
that out of the whole human race, from the beginning to the end of the world, the Son of God, by his spirit and word, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself unto everlasting life, a chosen communion in the unity of the true faith, and that I am forever and forever shall remain a living member of this community. Notice the three words that the Apostles' Creed looks at. Holy Catholic Church. Let's take them one at a time. Holy. That is means set apart. Consecrated. That means to be pure. And that's the way it is sometimes used as, as it is in First Peter 1 where he says, you are to be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. That is, you're set, set apart, but you are called in practice to be pure. You are to be moving in that direction. At the same time, there's also the position. You are a holy people. That doesn't mean you're perfect. You got everything all together. But God has separated you from one use, use to another. And that is what he's done. He has consecrated you. He has dedicated you to a very specific use. Not only you, but all Christians are dedicated to that place. One of the synonyms in Scripture, and that was not easy for me to say this morning. One of the synonyms in Scripture is the word saints. They come from the same root, the root for holy. And we think of, sometimes we think of saints as those who are exemplary in their work and in their lifestyle. Now, this word saints mainly simply means separated. Paul writes to the saints of Corinth, and you read the book of Corinth, and they weren't that saintly. They weren't that good. In fact, he has to keep kind of pounding on them in order to bring them back. But they were saints, holy. And that's who we are. When the Spirit works. He, he works to set aside a group of people for the use of God. That sounds like my cereal this morning. Snap, crackle, pop. <laughs> no. Second word, Catholic. Universal. And that word Catholic is a perfect, perfectly good word. And notice what it does not say. It doesn't say Roman Catholic Church. It doesn't say the Eastern Orthodox Church. And one of the reasons we've changed it from Catholic to universal is because people get upset with that word Catholic. Remember, it's a small C. It's not a big C. In fact, the whole idea of the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox Church didn't even come into existence until long after this, the Apostles' Creed was written. And it came out of the Nicene Creed and the way in which the writers of the Nicene Creed des described from whom the Holy Spirit came. Did he come from the Father or did he come from the Father and the Son? When you're in the service this morning and you read the Nicene Creed, you'll hear it say, and the Holy Spirit came from the Father and the Son. Eastern Orthodox didn't like that. And there was a split. But the idea of Catholic is it's universal. No, it's, it's something that is not in a particular area. It's worldwide. It knows no boundaries of nations. In fact, boundaries of nations are really not something that the Scripture knows about. They know tribes. They know peoples. They know people groups. But not so much boundaries. 
It means a people who are held together. And that's the, what the word Catholic. It's a reminder to us that we're one body and one family. And we are called to act in that oneness. As Galatians 3.28 says, neither we are, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, slave or free. You are all one in Christ. And that you all is a good southern word. You all are one in Christ. Not only the ones you look, look around and see this morning, but across the street, down the street, and in countries, some of which I can't even pronounce. There are believers and you all are in Christ. And that's part of the implication of this. The church is worldwide. It's not a local group. We are not the church. In fact, I usually am trying to be careful how I describe the church. For me, church is the worldwide church. I talk about congregations. They are small churches, individual churches. They are not the church. Uh, and we are called to remember them. We should be praying for the church worldwide. We should be listening to what they're saying and doing. Because some of them have far more insight into the scripture than we Western Christians have. We should be abiding with them. Helping them. And this congregation does through its work with Table Fellowship. The church in Bangladesh, we have helped. That's only one of a, the bigger church. We should be loving it. We should rejoice as we see many people in Iran and Saudi Arabia come to Christ. We should weep when we see those same people being beheaded because they've come to Christ. In fact, one of the things I learned early in my prayer life, someone told me, pick a country, maybe from your own background and your own lineage. And most of you don't have to take a DNA test to figure out what that is, right? Pick a country and you pray for that country and the church in there because it needs your help. One of mine is Germany because of my German background. If you can't, can't figure out from Gerhardt that I'm German, Find, find a lexicon or something. I pray for that because there in the heart of the Reformation, not only Lutheran but also the Reformed, it is so secular that only maybe 3% of the people go to church on a Sunday morning. Cathedral that could hold 1,000 have 10 to 15 people in it. You think you have space? Now they have a lot of space. Pray for it. Pray for the church, pray for the leaders, and keep it daily or at least weekly in your prayers. That's what it is to be Catholic, it's to be worldwide. But even more than that, it's age long. We are not the first Christians. We are not the first to come to faith in Christ. We have a long lineage. In fact, it goes all the way back to Adam. That's our lineage. Therefore, you learn about your people. Your people are those who settled into Israel after being uh, under slavery in Egypt. Your people are those 
who went out from a Middle Eastern country and spread the gospel in North Africa and the Middle East and Turkey and Greece and Rome. Your people are those who have written hymns for 2,000 years, who have sung the Psalms over and over again. Your people are the ones who have given you theology, a theology that has been hammered out over the centuries, not simply out of your own study. Your people are those who have given you writings and examples of how then to live, of a man named Polycarp, who was asked to recant his Christian faith. And he said, 80, 80 and six years I have served my Lord. I will not depart from him now. And they slaughtered him for that. That's the example you have of people. They've given you liturgies. The liturgy of the church of the 24, American 21st century needs also to have the background of the liturgy of all the centuries. Why? The Holy Spirit has been constructing the church. The Holy Spirit has been working through the 2,000 years since the resurrection of Christ to build a church and we take the best of what people have done over all those centuries. And we may alter it a little bit. We may put a little jazzier tune to Ferris Lord Jesus. Or we may take an ancient hymn and beef it up so that the drum player can just, you know, just go mad with it. But it is the words of that ancient hymn that speak, have spoken to so many people and have kept the faith over all these years that we are called to remember and to be a part of. I think, I, again, I go back to the Reformation. I'm sorry. I, I'm just captured by that. The Reformation came about not because they wanted to create a new church. We're going to create the church of the 16th century. Now, the leaders of the Reformation read Augustine from North Africa, Tertullian, and others from the Middle East, some from Turkey. They read the great writings of the pristine, not the early church. It wasn't pristine. It's never been pristine. And they looked at where their church was and they looked at what the church was meant to be and they say, we have to reform the church. Form it back to what it was meant to be. And so their theology is not a European theology. Their theology comes out of the Middle East. It comes out of the prophets and the apostles. It comes out of the early church fathers who did life and death battle in order for the church to grow. And this is part of our heritage. And the Holy Spirit uses that in order to understand and to operate within us. That gives us perspective. That helps us to see we're part of something much bigger. It's not only Catholic, but it's the church. The word church translates the word ecclesia. Ecclesia is one of those words that I can't spell. No, ecclesia is one of those Greek words which means the town crier goes out into the village and he says, hear ye, hear ye, come to the center of the, church, of the, 
of the village. And everybody leaves house and business and work, and they come to the center of the village to hear what the mayor has to say. They are the called out ones to assemble and to listen to the message. Each congregation, when we meet, is a ecclesia. We are called out ones. As far as the church as a whole, yeah, we're all called out to hear what the master says in his word. But every time we get together, we are called and assembled. And it's the Holy Spirit's work who is telling us to come together and to do what we are called to do. We have been called to out from the world and the influence of the world into this service of the king. Not simply a worship service, but to do that which we are called to do. And so the implications are very simple. Hebrews 10, 24, 25, do not forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some, but implore one another even more, especially as the day of returning is coming. We are not to be those who are not diligent about being together, especially as we celebrate the day of resurrection on Sunday. Used to be that four out of four Sundays, everybody would be there. And then it began to turn, and I I noticed this early on in my ministry, which is 43-some years. It became three out of four Sundays, and you were allowed to miss a Sunday to do something else. Today, it's Christians, evangelical Christians, may come one out of four Sundays. And the Holy Spirit wakes them up on Sunday morning and whispers in their ear, you ought to be at church. Get off the Methodist mattress. Get your head off the Presbyterian pillow. Get going to church. And you know what they do? La, 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 la. They're not listening, but the Holy Spirit is instructing us every day. I'll be honest with you, it's been a very long week. And I woke up this morning, and it was really tough getting going. And about 8.30, I'm going, can I call in sick? (laughs) And then the Holy Spirit reminded me, yeah, then the next week, you you can't teach what you're teaching today, right? Yes, sir. And so... I'm here, you're here. When the church gets together, it's time because the Holy Spirit is busy calling out God's people, not only in the beginning of faith, but also in an ever-creasing faith and action, and he does it through his church. And so it's the one, or it's the Holy Catholic Church. That's what the Holy Spirit is constructing, and he works overtime. Our issue is are we listening? to what the Spirit is doing. Second thing, communion. And we're not talking about the Lord's Supper, which is another term for the communion. We're going to get to that soon in the, uh, in the creed. Communion of the church. He says, what do you understand by the communion of saints? First, the believers, one and all, as members of the Lord Jesus Christ, are partakers with him in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that each one must 
feel himself bound to use his gifts and catch these words readily and cheerfully for the advantage and welfare of other members. Communion of the saints is the people of God being drawn together in fellowship with one another. Gave you a couple verses, but let me tell you a study that is very worthwhile if you haven't done it. Get a concordance and look up the phrase, one another. And see how many times the church is directed one another, love one another, be subject to one another, admonish one another, care for one another. There's, uh, there's a whole multitude of those, one another, because that's the communion. Our communion is, as the confession tells, the catechism tells us, is that we have a co common union, an inheritance that we share. We have a triune God. Each, each of those of us who are believers have a triune God. We from whom we receive all the benefits of what Christ has done for us. We have the word and its doctrines and its teachings. That's part of the inheritance that has been given to us. We have our life and our experiences. We learn from one another what to do and what not to do as we watch one another. It's the beauty of a Christian marriage is that iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And those who are married, who are Christians, they sharpen one another. Sometimes they do it in a, uh, an abrasive way, and other times they do it in a gentle way. But you learn your faults, and you learn your weaknesses. Didn't take very long. And I can't tell the story I'd want to do, because Peg would not like me to do, tell it. But early on in our marriage, I learned something about women and something about Peg I had never known before. She continues to let me know that I learned it a long time ago. And now you're all going to go, what was that? But out of the experiences of our life, the things that we need to deal with, we learn from one another. We learn what's good and what's bad. And we are called to be that way. We worship together. Again, one of the reasons you do not forsake the assembling together. We share praise. We share pray, prayer. We share proclamation. We share God's presence, not only because he comes to his people, but especially as we come to the Lord's Supper at the end of the service. It's one of the reasons I love this congregation. You have the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And even on the Sundays, I'm not too sure about faith and life and all that stuff, I look at the elements up in there and say, I know. I know my Savior lives. And I know He's with me. And something mysterious happens every time God's people come together. In everyone who is God's, per God's person. You may not understand it. You may not get goosebumps over it. You may not so stand up and go, Hallelujah! But something mysterious is taking place in the midst of God's people. And it comes because of our union and our commonness with one another. So the implications are we stay with one another and we battle through the tough spots. I, I like to look at the church as two porcupines on a cold night. Some of you were out in the cold last night. Two porcupines, they get the close together because they need the warmth and the support. And then they prick one another and they separate. 
And this goes on all night long. How they ever get sleep, I'll never know. But that's the way the church is. Somebody looks at me or doesn't look at me, doesn't say something, or says something that I take the wrong way, and it, it pricks me, and I go, whoop, let's separate. No, 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 no. The whole idea is that we have communion is you deal with one another and you battle through the tough spots. I know people have been hurt by the church. I've had to deal with it myself. I've had to deal with it with others. But that's simply the, the quills of the porcupine touching one another. And you have to overcome that. The creed will tell us how to do that in just a minute. We have to look at our salvation corporately. It's not me and Jesus in the garden all by myself. It's us. It has to be us. It's what Philippians 2, 4, 4 to 6 talks about, how we are to emulate Christ by being a servant, by putting down the things that are, we could consider ours and giving ourselves to one another. That when we come in here, we are not here to be served, but to serve and to give our lives as a ransom for others. It's other-oriented. It's a phrase I hear today, common in the church. Come to church. What's in it for me? Well, you know the other place I hear it? My grandchildren. Little kids. What's in it for me? Why should I do this? Because I told you so. That's why. No, not that. It says, if you grow up and you mature, you say, it's not what's in it for me. It's what can I give to somebody else? It's one of the issues of marriage. Marriage in our day is what can that person do to me? And that's a horrible foundation for marriage because a person will never fulfill your needs. Marriage is what can I do for that other person? How can I make that person better? How can I help that person? How can I give to that person? How can I love that person? That's what marriage and that's what the church is all about. Or the other one I, I hear, and I hear it over and over, I'm not being fed. You know where I hear that? My four-day-old grandson. I'm not getting my food. Cries out. Only babies say I'm not being fed. Children and adults say, there's food, I'll find it and I'll eat it. There is a wealth of food in this book, and you can find it, and you can eat it, and you do it with one another. That's why Sunday morning is not sufficient for an individual. You need to have other people with whom you're sharing the word and sharing life experiences. Because in that sharing is where you're feeding one another. If you haven't figured out, I like you guys. I really like you guys. In fact, when I was out of here for about six weeks because of my operation, I came back that Sunday and I said, this is a great people. Because we had the communion that I missed for those six weeks. I'm glad for the elders who brought me communion. 
But there is something about seeing your smiling, smiling faces <laughs> and just being in your presence and talking with you that was so great. That is part of what it says when we have communion with one another. It's not that the church is perfect. We're porcupines. We're not, you know, all you have to do is read Matthew's parables like Matthew 13, 24 to 30, where it talks about how the wheat and the tares have been sown together. And that's not meant for us to be able to say, well, you're a tear and you're a wheat. You're a tear and you're a wheat. It's meant to say, am I a wheat? Am I a tear? And to search my own heart to make sure that I'm growing the way that I'm meant to be. Because the wheat and the tares will only be separated when Christ comes back. Up until then, or as another parable says, up until then, we are sheep and goats together. So it's not going to be perfect. But it will be that which helps teach you, train you, help you to grow. And again, that's part of the construction. It's your communion. And finally, you have the cohesiveness of the church. What holds it together? What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? That God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, nor the sinful nature with which I have to struggle all my life long, but graciously imputes to me the righteousness of Christ that I may never more come into his condemnation." Classic passage for this is Matthew 18. We don't have time to read it. You can read it. The context is Jesus has been talking about forgiving one another. And Peter, bless his heart, Peter pipes up and says, Lord, shall we forgive one another seven times? The rule of thumb back then is you forgave someone the third time. Fourth time, boom, you took them out. Or you forgot them. He said, listen, listen to this, Jesus. I'm going to multiply it by two and add one for good measure. Isn't that great? And Jesus' response is, no. Forgive seven times 70, which is in essence saying an infinite amount of times. And the parable is a man who comes and he owes 120 lifetimes of wages to the king. Pleads mercy and the king forgives him. But the same man goes out and he finds a person who owes him about one day's wages. And he takes him and throttles him and throws him into prison. And the end of the parable is you should have had mercy on the one with whom you had mercy. That is what forgiveness is all about. We remember that God remembers our sins no more. Again, it is that beautiful part of the gospel called double imputation. My sin is put on Christ. Christ's righteousness is put on me. And that, ladies and gentlemen, that's the gospel. It's not God has a wonderful plan for your life and loves you, and wants to have you have all you want. It is he takes your sin, he put it on Christ on the cross so that it's taken all of, in all of your sin, even the stuff you haven't done yet. God has already put that on Christ. 
And then he takes the righteousness of Christ that he, that Christ earned by living a perfect life. And he says, that's how I see you. No more sin. It's been taken away. And the righteousness of Christ has been given to you. And that is how you've been set apart. Ephesians 1, 7 talks about in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ. Absolutely taken away. And that house is how we have to see one another. When we sin, no matter how grievous that sin may be, it's already been paid for and a new life has been given to me. And that's how we're called to live. At the same time, we have to do this corporately. He has, he says, what I have accomplished with you, I have accomplished with every other person here that you know, wherever, who believes in Jesus Christ. You're all the same. You all stand on level ground. And what we need to do is like that servant who was forgiven an astronomical debt. Realize what God has forgiven us is an astronomical debt. And whatever somebody has done to us is pittance in relationship to what we've done to God. And God has given us the ability to forgive one another. And that's what makes communion possible. That makes when the porcupines come together and separate, they'll come, come together again. They'll forgive. Say, well, you don't know what somebody has done to me. Well, I know what people have done to me. Slander, accusations, the uh, things that people have done to me, and I remember some of the things I've done to people, and I understand Christ has leveled the field. And what they've done is nothing close to what I not only have done, but I am doing even right now toward my God. That's how we look. And this is the Holy Spirit who comes to convict you of your sins. To show you how radically horrible they are. The very core. And even though you've come to Christ, you're not perfect. You still do it. And you will always, as it says, you will struggle all my life long until the day in which, uh, that moment in which I take my last breath in whatever form that may be. I will struggle against my sin and yet God in Christ has forgiven me. And you only have to struggle a tiny little bit with somebody else's sin. You need another example? We don't say this Sunday after Sunday, but I hope you use this as a pattern of prayer. The Lord's Prayer. And what's one of the phrases in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts as we forgive the debts of one another. Now that's not in proportion. Well, Lord, you're going to forgive me my debts in proportion to which I forgive others. No, because he forgives us fully because of Christ. What he is basically saying, it's practical. Forgive one another since you have been forgiven.
And if you say the Lord's Prayer, hopefully not in rote, if you say the Lord's Prayer and you come to that part that says, as I forgive others, and you haven't forgiven, you're not praying. You see how radical this forgiveness is? And that's the Holy Spirit saying to you, you need to forgive one another. My second church was a church we were helping to be, move into renewal. And it's about three, four years in, it was really starting to take place. We were watching people come to Christ, people be baptized in the Spirit or released to the Spirit. Things were, new leadership was rising, and then there was a group of people who did not like that at all because it was a threat to their power. That and one other thing, and this came through in the discussions we had. They did not like hearing the gospel that they were saved by grace. We're good people. We do good things. God accepts us because, because we're just good. Yeah, that's about my response. <laughs> and the phrase from Paul says, there is no, none who are good, no, not one. Just hit a stone wall. And they said, we don't want to hear this anymore. And in essence, they voted me out. Well, about a week or two later, one of the ringleaders' mothers died. And being pastor, not out of an obligation as pastor, but because I knew how precious the mother was to this individual, I went to see him. I rang the doorbell. He opened the doorbell. His jaw dropped. And it was very uncomfortable, probably more for him than me, but I had forgiven him and forgiven others who had manufactured that whole scenario because that's cohesiveness and that is what we are called to do. And that's what the Lord pr Prayer says that we are called to do. You know how hard at work the Holy Spirit is, is within his church as a whole and especially a congregation? I know in our day and age, we like the spectacular. We want to see people falling down and writhing and, and screaming. We want to hear holy laughter. We want to see the excitement and people jumping up and down. But more often than not, the Holy Spirit is working in the mundane. He's working in the communion of saints to bring cohesion to the forgiveness of forgiving one another and helping one another, to admonish one another, to do all the one another's. Why? Because he is constructing a holy temple, a cathedral. And when Christ, who as Paul says in Ephesians 5, is preparing his bride for the wedding, that means she's, the wedding hasn't taken place and the bride is still in her filthiness. And he's working with his people by the Holy Spirit in little ways over and over again. He is a work building that cathedral and the Holy Spirit is the one who's constructing it. Now, as that happens, you are called to be part of that construction. Individually and corporately. And the creed reminds us that the Spirit wants you 
to build this little part of the whole cathedral and to be aware of the cathedral he's building around the world and throughout the ages. And he calls you to do that. That is the primary work of the Holy Spirit. He's leading you to see Jesus and to follow him. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are grateful that you've not left us as orphans. Lord Jesus, you ascended, but you have come back as in the other comforter, the Holy Spirit. And you are hard at work making your church what it's meant to be. May we be as hard at work as the Spirit is. May we do so cheerfully. May we do so in rejoicing. May we do so as those who are giving ourselves full orb to the work that you have for us. And may we learn the lessons of forgiveness and cohesion in the midst of it. Our Father, the last thing we want to do is grieve the Holy Spirit. Because out without him we have nothing. He is, in our, he is our inheritance, our guarantee, our seal. And so, oh Lord, help us to live for you. And we ask it in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said, Amen.